This morning we're going to be talking specifically about one verse from Acts chapter 4, Acts 4.12, where the early disciples were forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem, but they insisted that they would continue to do that. And, and part of what we're going to look at is why that all happened. Uh, so in a moment we're going to read Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Uh, before that, I just want to say... Uh, just to, by way of explanation, if you're wondering about some of the songs we sang, the word Jaira in Hebrew uh, refers to God as our provider. So Abraham gave the Lord a title at one point when he announces that God will be known as Jehovah Jaira or Yahweh Jaira, meaning the Lord who provides. And uh, there, there are so many things that we have to be thankful for when we think of, of the way that God provides. I want to thank you as a congregation um, for the way that you've supported me and my family for the last few weeks. Yesterday we had a celebration of life service for my mother-in-law. And just thinking back over the last few weeks and the way that you guys have come around us and the way that you've encouraged us in this time, it's just been phenomenal. And as our family has been visiting um, from other places, it's, it's been fantastic just to see them respond to the way that North River uh, provides and the way that North River responds. As we pray in a few moments, one of the people I'm going to be praying for is Jeremy Rinney. Jeremy used to be the pastor over at South Shore Baptist in Hingham. Uh, today he's the pastor of Sanibel Community Church down in Florida. So if you think of this re most recent storm, they had to get out of their home and evacuate the island that they live on. I saw pictures of their church, which was severely damaged by the storm, and then the bridge to the island collapsed. So they don't know when they're going to be able to get back onto the island. They can't check their home. They can't check their church. All the people in that congregation are really dealing with uh, some major issues uh, this weekend. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. In the midst of this speech at the temple courts, after healing a man who had been born lame... Peter picks up some of his thought here in verse 10. He says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And then here's the key verse. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, thank you for the way that you provide for your people in all kinds of situations in the midst of hardship and bad weather and storms of life and seasons of life that we all go through. You are an amazing God in the way that you provide help and hope and healing Sometimes the help and hope and healing comes through other people. Sometimes it comes directly from your hand, but you are a great God. We gather here this morning together to praise you and to acknowledge your name, for you are the authority in our lives, and you are, you are the God who not only created this world, but you created us, and, and you have a, a vested interest in each of us. We sang a moment ago that we are chosen, and we are more loved right now than we've ever been before. And we know that in Colossians, Paul wrote that we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved when we put our faith in Christ, and that's the way you see us. So thank you that we can rejoice in such things. 
This morning, we, we lift up those who are suffering and hurting in a variety of places in the southern part of this country with this devastating storm. We lift up Jeremy and Sanibel Community Church. We pray that you will provide solutions for them and answers, whether that's through government help or other organizations and agencies or in terms of how that community pulls together. Uh, we pray that you will provide for them open doors and give them clear thinking and clear solutions as they try to unravel the damage and pick up and, and go on with life again. Lord, we ask that you would also be at work in, in our lives. There are storms that come that have nothing to do with the weather, uh, storms that may be uh, in terms of economics or, or jobs or uh, family sicknesses or illnesses that find, find their way into our lives. And we never know when these things are coming. But we do know that you are a God who is able to walk with us through all of these seasons of life, and you do not betray us. Thank you for the legacy that you have left in the past few weeks of, of walking alongside my mother-in-law as, as her cancer diagnosis came in and with this rapid downfall. Thank you for the way that you also uh, have walked with Joan Cahill through the final weeks of her life and, and simply giving her this sense that, that you are with her, that you can be trusted uh, even in, in the darkest days of life. And we pray that you will continue to bring hope into our lives as well. Thank you for the time that we have this morning and the freedom that we have to open your word, to look at the way that it applies to our lives today, and to celebrate Jesus in our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. John Ortberg wrote about seeing an advertisement that was billed, that billed its product as a must-have. Have you ever heard that phrase? Have you heard it recently? We are subjected to a, a number of ads that advocate for the latest and greatest pro, uh, products that are out there. Think of this. There's Mike the Pillow Guy that tells us that we'll never get a good night's sleep without his must-have pillow. About every other year, Apple comes out with a new must-have version of the iPhone, and all of a sudden, you feel inferior because your iPhone might be three years old. Car makers come up with the new must-have car or truck that you need to drive if you're really going to be at the cutting edge of the way that we operate. Or there are must-have shoes or clothing or gadgets or home goods that they're always hawking. Ortberg adds to this observation. These must-haves go far beyond the realm of merchandise, he writes. Employers list their must-haves for potential employees. Graduates create their must-have lists, uh, lists for potential jobs. And the most familiar must-haves seem to show up in the world of dating. Women have must-haves in regard to men, and men have must-haves in regard to women. When we talk about them, when we think about them, must-haves are essentials. They are non-negotiables. So it figures that our relationship with Jesus also includes must-haves, essentials, and non-negotiables. In the days of the Reformation, theologians argued for a series of non-negotiables or beliefs that were called the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for alone. So they talked about things like being saved by grace alone or through faith alone and to the glory of God alone and finding truth through Scripture alone. The Bible alone is the unique word of God. One of those solas was called solus Christus 
or in Christ alone. It conveys the idea that we are saved by and in Jesus Christ alone. Now, here's the point that I'm working toward. We're going to explore that idea this morning that we are saved in Christ alone and that there is no other name that God has provided for our salvation other than Jesus' name. Therefore, that name has great significance to us. I bring this up today because we're in a series that we're calling Faith Explosion that we began a few weeks ago. And this series looks at principles that contributed to the spread of the Christian faith in the earliest years of the Christian church. Today's topic is no other name. There is no other name like the name of Jesus, especially once we come to know him. So welcome to North River Church this morning. I'm glad that you're here. One thing that we have tried to do for more than 30 years is provide a safe place where we can tackle challenging concepts. Thank you for helping us do that. Together we are creating a culture where we can present, probe, and ponder the central concepts of historic Christian faith. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for helping us do this all through the years. And let me say hello to everybody who is watching online this week. Thank you for checking out North River today if that's what you're doing. We are finding that one of the safest ways for people to first have their introduction to North River is by watching online. Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who's here present for the first time in the room, and they'll say, well, I've actually been part of North River for six months or for a year, and I've been watching you guys. Today's just the first time that I entered the building. So thank you for watching online. Thank you for those of you who are not able to get out this morning and are regularly a part of North River. We're glad that you're here. Whether you're online or whether you're in the room, one of the things that we've been trying to do for a long time is to create what I would call a culture of invitation. So you are welcome to invite your friends to come with you. If this has value to you, it probably will have value and meaning for somebody else that you know who is looking either for answers about God, Scripture, or Jesus, or who is looking for a place where they can worship in a way that connects with them. And they will trust your invitation and your word more than anybody else's. Discuss what you're learning. Tell them what you're seeing and and what you're finding in God and what you're finding here. Now, there are some simple ways for you to connect with us, whether you're in the room or whether you are online this morning. Uh, If you're in the room, on the back of the chairs, you notice Christy mentioned that QR code. You can take your scanner on your phone, and, and you can do that. It will take you to a connection card that you can fill out online. Or if you want to look on our website, if you go to northriverchurch.org forward slash visit, that connection card will show up, and you can do that online. I got one of those just the other day, and I appreciated that. Or physically, you can go to the Welcome Center and just ask for um, a connection card. They'll give you one. They end up on my desk, and we get to begin that conversation about where you're at and where God is meeting you right now. Here's our vision statement, or our mission statement for North River. Helping people who are far from God become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. This tells us two things, that our church, first of all, is for people who feel far from God. Maybe you haven't been in a church in a long time or you've drifted away spiritually. And we have always wanted to create a safe place where people who are either investigating Christianity or finding their way back can feel safe about doing that and feel that they will be welcomed, not shamed or shunned. But this is also a church for those who are longtime believers wanting to grow deeper, and our goal is to help people become fully developed worshipers and servants of Jesus. Just about everything that we are asked to do in Scripture as Christians falls under these two headings. It either falls under the heading of worship or how we serve in the way that Jesus served as well.
Now, I have two questions in mind this morning as I was thinking through this particular message. What were the religious leaders doing when they interrupted Peter and John as they were preaching outside the temple in Jerusalem? And why did Peter refuse to back down when he was told to stop teaching in the name of Jesus Christ and to stop mentioning that Jesus had been raised from the dead? So I'm going to take this particular message in two sections. The first section has to do with what the religious leaders were doing. Number one, they tried to, set to silence all resurrection talk. If you're a person who fills in the blanks, the, blank, the word that you're missing there is silence. They tried to silence this discussion about the resurrection of Jesus. If we just roll back a little bit in Acts chapter 4 to verses 2 and 3, it says, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The they refers to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Have you noticed how there are some things that we're just not supposed to say today? Words and phrases that were once part of typical conversation are no longer allowed because they are deemed to be politically incorrect. And every week or every month, it's all, it seems, that we're, we're finding new words, new phrases that we can no longer say if you want to be in the know. Now, some of this is appropriate. When words or phrases are intentionally harmful or demeaning or insulting to a marginalized group of people, we should refrain from using them in some derogatory way. However, there are times when people are silenced for saying things that are true just because a segment of our culture doesn't want to hear about that body of truth. That's where I have a bit more difficulty. Here in Acts chapter 4, back in the first century, this was a brazen attempt to silence Peter and John and to remove all discussion, all resurrection talk. How do we know this? Verse 1 tells us that on the afternoon when Peter and John healed this lame man, this man who had been born without the ability to walk, and they had told to, to, to rise up in Jesus' name, and who was jumping and leaping and rejoicing in the temple courts, they were interrupted by a group of priests, temple guards, and Sadducees. Verse 2 spells out their concern. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Verse 3 tells us that they put Peter and John in jail overnight because it was late in the day, they couldn't bring them before a magistrate. Verse 4 tells us that many people who heard the preaching of Peter and John in the temple courts after that miraculous healing put their faith in Jesus. This is what the religious leaders were upset about. And there's actually a number that's given there. It says that the number had risen to about 5,000 men. Now think of this. After the ascension of Jesus, when he went back into the heavens after 40 days of walking around the earth and teaching after he was raised from the dead, Acts 1.15 says that there were 120 people who openly followed Jesus. Then Pentecost came, the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the, Holy Spirit, on, on the uh, disciples with power and they began preaching in the streets of Jerusalem. On that one day, there were about 3,000 people, most of them Jews, who believed in Jesus as the Messiah and were baptized. So now the number goes up to 3,120. And now after this particular healing... Here in Acts 4, 4, we're told that the number of men, not even counting the women and children, had risen to 5,000. 
So you get the sense that this very first church is beginning, beginning to grow rapidly and there are a handful of events that are triggering this rapid growth of the early Christian church. And you bet it got the attention of those who, who were opposed to the idea that one, that Jesus was the Son of God, two, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and they wanted to stamp out all of this resurrection talk because talk about the resurrection of Jesus is such a critical factor that when people reckon with the evidence of the resurrection, it leads more and more people to the ability to be able to put their faith in Jesus. That was true then. That is still true today. It's why the resurrection is so central to our faith. The actions of the religious leaders were driven by what we can call ideological opposition. Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, deliberately drops in a detail that mentions the Sadducees. Say that with me, Sadducees. Now, this is not trying to get power, having you say words that I will think are important. This is just simply for memory's sake, because we don't talk about the Sadducees very often, but they were an important faction within first century Judaism, and it's important that we know something about them because Luke tells us that they were leading this ideal, ideological opposition. The Sadducees were a highly influential group who were part of the, the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. They were all trained in rabbinic thought, customs, and theology, and they tended to be wealthy and powerful, and men who were on the Jewish ruling council made up more than half of that council. And there was one specific belief that they were known for. They did not believe in the possibility of the resurrection of the dead. This was longstanding even before the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity.com helps us understand a little bit more about this ideological opposition. The Sadducees believed in unrestrained free will for all people to the point where they believe that God has no role in our personal lives. And they rejected all belief in the supernatural. So, for them, there's no heaven, no hell, no afterlife, no angels. They believe that all souls die with their bodies, and that's it. You're gone. So, if Jesus really rose from the tomb and the resurrection was true, that meant that their game was up. Do you see the threat? for the, the Sadducees. Here's Peter and John. They're, they're healing a man, and they're showing miraculous power that comes in the name of Jesus, and then they are preaching about the resurrection of Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem and at the temple. Can you see why they interrupted Peter and John as they were speaking and then had them thrown in jail overnight? So the first thing they did was they tried to silence the apostles. Here's the second tactic that they used. They resorted to intimidation. That's the second blank you have on your notes. Verse 5 and verse 15 of this same chapter. Verse 5 says, The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Jump forward to verse 15. It says, So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. If you have a pen out, circle that word Sanhedrin. That's the official name of the ruling council. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So this, this formal name for the ruling council was called the Sanhedrin. They were, they were made up of 70 members, and adding in the high priest made it 71 who would lead this group. They were leading scholars and priests in the city. 
Some think that the formation of the Sanhedrin had gone all the way back to the days of Moses when he was told to gather together 70 of the elders of the people to help him guide the people of Israel. When the Romans took control of Israel, they took over all of the affairs of of leadership of the nation. However, in Jerusalem, they left the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, in charge of the religious life of the Jewish people. And so they had a fair amount of authority, and yet there were limits to it. If you remember back when the Sanhedrin opposed Jesus, they could not sentence him to death. They needed Pilate, the Roman governor, to do that, even though it's what they recommended. So you see some of the limits there. The combination of healing the lame man and teaching about the resurrection landed Peter and John in hot water before this body, before the Sanhedrin. That's what was was going on in most of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, in a sense, were on trial right there before all of the people at the temple. Two things had brought them into this trouble. The first was healing this man who had been lame his entire life until this miraculous intervention in the name of Christ. And second was teaching people that his healing was done in the name of Jesus who rose from the dead. Or more specifically, they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who who God had raised from the dead. To ratchet up the intimidation on this second day after Peter and John are brought out of, of jail where they'd spent the night, they brought the entire Sanhedrin. So the first day, we just have the Sadducees who are the, the largest section of the Sanhedrin, and they are opposing Jesus. The second day, they convene the entire Sanhedrin. This is a huge trial. There's 71 judges who are going to evaluate Peter and John on that day. In in matters of customs and beliefs in that day, the Sanhedrin had the final word in terms of religious life in the city of Jerusalem. While they let Peter and John go, at the end of their investigation, They made threats against them. We're not told by Luke what the threats were, but I imagine the threats were, we'll throw you back in jail for a longer period of time, or we'll come after you. Think, this is the same group that commissioned Saul of Tarsus in just a short while to begin rounding up Christians, throwing them in prison, and even killing some. We find Saul of Tarsus there holding the cloaks of people who were stoning Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, to death, and he's approving of this. Now, this is what happens today when voices push ideological opposition upon Christians. They try to limit what you can say and where you can say it. Another name for this is viewpoint discrimination. We should never be surprised or shocked that this goes on. It was going on in the time of Jesus. When you do stand up against this, the next tactic usually is that somebody tries to intimidate you. We're going to take you down. We're going to make life difficult for you. Uh, Or maybe if you're in an academic community, we're going to silence you and your writing will no longer appear on Amazon.com. And I know authors where that has happened to them because what they have written goes against this whole uh, new viewpoint and, and they're experiencing viewpoint opposition or intimidation. Okay, we've looked at what the religious leaders were doing. Now let's look at why Peter and John resisted and refused to back down. Why did they do that? Three reasons. Number one, Peter connected Jesus' name with the power to heal. So we read a few moments ago, verse 10. Verse 10 says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter knew that he had acted with the authority of Christ. If you think back to this miracle now that we've been looking at for three weeks, 
Peter and John were on their way towards the end of the workday, three o'clock in the afternoon. They're making their way with other people to the temple to pray. So there was a set time when the early Christians would pray in the temple courts. While they're there, they notice this man who was sitting there. He'd been carried by friends, and he's begging. He'd done this every day, day after day. He couldn't get there by himself. Friends had to carry him and drop him there, and he's asking for money. And Peter looks at him and says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I will give you. And then he says, get up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the guy not only gets up, they have to help him up at first. It says, as he was rising up, his feet and his ankles were healed. And not only does he walk, but he starts jumping and leaping, and he's, he's, he's doing the max thing here, uh, you know, from North River, and, and just praising God in bodily form. And it's an amazing event. It gets the attention of all the people. A crowd forms around Peter and John, and we are picking apart this whole event and their message week by week, a little bit at a time. Peter knew that he had acted in the authority of Jesus Christ. Now think of this authority in the name of Christ. The opening words from Jesus in the Gospels tell us that he came announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. His final words given to us in Matthew chapter 28, he begins by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he offers what we call the Great Commission, and he sends the disciples out. It was in light of that authority that Jesus commissioned his apostles. In essence, the showdown in Jerusalem was between the authority of Jesus and his kingdom versus the authority of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. The ultimate evidence of Jesus' authority was then and is today the resurrection. The immediate evidence that they were dealing with was this formerly lame man who is now standing before them, jumping and leaping and praising God and giving credit to God for this healing. So, I ask you the same question Peter was asking that day. Whose authority was greater? The council's or God's? The council's or Jesus' authority? And he was simply pointing them to the immediate evidence of the resurrection seen in the healing power that came in the name of Jesus. Two interesting side notes. The Greek word in the New Testament that is used for healed here can also mean saved. It's the Greek word sozo, which from which salvation comes from. Jesus is the one who can heal the body with miraculous interventions of compassion. Jesus is the one who can heal the soul And so we have salvation by grace through faith. Second side note, the Sadducees essentially disbanded by 73 AD. They were gone. No wonder they felt threatened by the name of Jesus and the message of the resurrection because they had been promoting this idea that God doesn't intervene miraculously in the affairs of men and women. And they'd been promoting this idea that when you hit the dirt, you're gone. You evaporate. There's no more memory. There is no life after life. There is no hope of eternity. But if Jesus really rose from the grave, and not only rose from the grave, it wasn't a resuscitation. He didn't have a body like the old body. If you think through who Jesus was after the resurrection, he had a resurrection body. He appeared all of a sudden in the room with the disciples. He had these wounds that were still there, but they no longer affected him. He could rise up into the heavens, and he's in the presence of God. These are the bodies Christians are going to have one day 
when, when we are also raised to be like Jesus, we will not have these old bodies. It'll look like this body, but it won't be limited in the same way. This is really an amazing thing. And the Sadducees were smart enough to realize if Jesus really came out of the tomb, and if John and Peter were right, the game was up for the Sadducees and their power was gone. It's no wonder they ceased to exist just a few decades later. Here's the big idea for this morning. We say in Christ alone and we sing in Christ alone because no one compares with Jesus. Here's the second reason why they resisted. They knew that the foundation of faith rests on Jesus. So in verse 11, Peter is still speaking. He says, Jesus is, and now he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. This is thought to be a psalm of David. It is one of the six Hallel songs, which is the beginning of Hallelujah. Uh, They were read on special Jewish holidays or holy days, and they would have been very, very familiar to every Jewish person in that era of the apostles. Verse 22 is the key verse because Jesus quoted it. He did it in Luke chapter 20 when the religious leaders were questioning his authority. And in this case, Jesus had driven out the money changers in the temple. Do you remember that scene? There was all kinds of corruption going on, and they were ripping off people. And Jesus overthrew the tables, and he chased them out of there with a whip. And people were surprised by Jesus. And members of the Sanhedrin showed up then, too, and they said, By what authority are you doing this? They were absolutely upset. And Jesus answered them this way. He says, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he adds this statement to it. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Perplexing words. Critics of the New Testament often pride themselves in noting that Psalm 118.22 in the Old Testament version says that this was a capstone Well, Luke chapter 20, verse 17, and Acts 4, 11 use the word cornerstone. So they ask, is the Bible contradicting itself? Which was it? There are two different things. A capstone is a stone that goes over an entryway and it kind of locks in all the stonework where a cornerstone sits at the bottom, usually on the corner of a building, and it frames uh, stones that will go this way in one wall and this way in another wall, and it kind of sets the direction of the building. Is the Bible confused itself? However, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament can mean either capstone or cornerstone, while in English we have two different words. Perhaps this is why Jesus adds this commentary. Think of the commentary that he adds here. It's possible to trip over a cornerstone which is low. Perhaps it sticks out a little more widely, and as you're walking along the edge of the building, you stumble when your toe hits the edge of the cornerstone, and you would fall over it. But if a capstone falls on you, you're going to be crushed. Here's this very large piece of granite that falls down on top of you. Jesus was not only claiming that he himself was the cornerstone and capstone of God's redemptive work through the ages, he was also warning that all who reject him will find that the foundation of their lives will fall apart and crush them in the end. Jesus is both. It doesn't have to be an either or. 
He's the cornerstone that sets the foundation of all the work that God is doing. He's the capstone that holds it all together and keeps it from falling apart. And the entryway is under the authority of the capstone. It's a beautiful picture. This is why several hymns and praise songs that we continue to sing today include this note of the cornerstone. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord, the old hymn says. Or my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. It's the cornerstone. And here's the third reason. No other name matches Jesus' authority. So verse 12 comes in. It's the key verse of this whole section. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is often said that we live in an age of pluralism. I don't have a problem with that. By definition, pluralism means that there are two or more philosophies or many philosophies, worldviews, or religions that can coexist in the same society. In regard to religion or faith, pluralism suggests freedom of religion and respect for those who differ from our views or our faith. That said, the existence of several religions does not mean that all truth claims are equal or that all truth claims are valid, even while people have the right to hold on to them. When Peter made this statement about Jesus' name and authority, he knew some things. He knew that this man who had been born lame and healed in Jesus' name had not been healed by any other name. He knew that the kingdom of God had come with the arrival of Jesus, not under any other name. He knew that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth had been on that cross, on the placard that they hung over Jesus' head, not any other name. He was the one who died for our sins. He knew that the redemption had been accomplished by Jesus, not according to any other name. He knew that the redemption is accessed through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, not through any other religious figure. He knew that in Jesus, God provides forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, not in, by, or through any other name. And he knew that the salvation of the human soul has been won by Jesus, not through the authority of any other name. Why did the intimidation tactics not work? Because Peter and John knew what comes with the name of Jesus. To embrace the restrictions imposed by the Sanhedrin, Peter would have had to abandon the truth he knew about the singular authority of Jesus. Peter would have had to fail to offer the message of forgiveness and grace through Jesus to his fellow Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Peter would have had to neglect to show the way to adoption as sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. Peter would have had to leave the lame beggar in that state for the rest of his life and say, I can't offer you healing in the name of Jesus because we're going to get in trouble with the Sanhedrin. Oh, that's too much. Instead, he knew that the name of Jesus would be opposed and he knew that the name of Jesus had an authority like no other name. And he would have had to deny the power of the resurrection despite seeing Jesus live even after dying a public death, even after being put in that tomb without any food, water, or medical attention. 
and lasting into the third day. Peter stood his ground and resisted because there is no other name equal to Jesus' authority. We love people with other worldviews, but we point them to Jesus. We can respect people of other faiths, yet articulate why we trust in Jesus alone. We can live in a pluralistic society and love that, and yet honor and follow only Jesus in the midst of that society. We can act with personal humility and at the same time articulate how Jesus provides a better and exclusive way to find peace with God. It's not that we are superior. It's not that our faith is superior. It is that Jesus is superior. There is no other name. What do you do with this? If you haven't yet, the logical conclusion to what Peter was saying here is that you and I must put our personal faith and trust in Jesus as the Savior whom God has provided. If you've come to that conclusion, that saving grace comes only through Jesus, you will find nobody else who has the authority of Jesus to connect you with the living God. And so the next step in your spiritual journey is to shift your trust from religion or from yourself to Jesus. It's a decision of the heart and mind that you can make right now wherever you are, whether you're online, at home in your kitchen or your living room, or you're traveling and you're watching from a hotel, or, or whether you're right here in, in the room. Second, for all of us, make the name of Jesus your non-negotiable, your must-have. Refuse to be ashamed of Jesus. Refuse to let others silence your faith. There are times when we speak up and there are times when we should be quiet. But don't let somebody else silence you. Refuse to let others intimidate you in a way that keeps you from saying, Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Realize that when we receive communion together, this is what we are saying. In Christ alone, I place my faith. In Christ alone, I find my hope. We say and we sing in Christ alone because no one compares with Jesus. We're going to end this morning by celebrating communion together. Hopefully, you picked up a communion kit on the way in. If you haven't, Peter over here has a basket, and uh, you just raise up your hand, and they'll get you one. I see one over here, Peter, in the, towards the front. And uh, Let's peel off the smaller end, the... the, the uh, the lid on the smaller end, and that will lead you to a small little wafer. And let's acknowledge that when Jesus set this in motion, what he was telling us is when we eat this bread together, we acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh, that he died a real physical life, that he gave up his body for our sins. Let's eat in remembrance of him. Lord, when we eat this, we not only are reminded of what you've done for us and how you came, taking on human life as a little baby and growing up to be a man, and then giving that life for us. We're also reminded that you loved us enough to do all of this. And we know that we are frail. One day we will all die. 
but we have hope in life that goes beyond this life because of Jesus. Let's peel off the top layer, the larger one. Jesus said that this reminds us of the new covenant that he has made with us, a covenant in his own blood, and that his blood covers our sins and washes them away. And we're acknowledging that he bled for us that we might live and that we might be refreshed and renewed and reconciled to God. Let's drink this in remembrance of Jesus. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that we live in a land where we can openly proclaim our faith, our love for the Lord, our gratitude to you. We recognize that people aren't brought into the kingdom through intimidation. They're brought in through love. They're brought in through the influence of your spirit. They are brought in through the logical truth of the evidence of the Gospels. We pray that you will continue to live not only in our hearts and our minds, but in our conversations and in our love for other people, all kinds of people, those who believe what we believe, those who don't, those who are trying to follow other traditions and other faiths. Simply let us be among those who can point them toward the Savior that we found and toward the hope that we found and trust that you will lead them there too. Guide us this week as we walk out into our troubled and often uncertain world, our vastly divided world. Give us the hope that we can walk into all the confusion and all the division that's out there because we've been reconciled to you. Dear God, we pray this in Jesus' name.